Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you today. September 19th, the Feast of St. Januarius, who we will be speaking about later on in this episode. Uh, great Italian Neapolitan saint. But um, before we get into all that, let me just say, once again, I'm recording very, very late in the day. Um, so late, in fact, that it's no longer day. It is now night time. <laughs> as you can no doubt tell by the sound of the uh, melodies of nocturnal creatures who are singing their songs in the background of this podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the reason for that is this has been an extraordinarily busy weekend for us here at St. Patrick's. I know I mentioned last week we were preparing for the seminary gala. We had that last night, so it's it's all over now. And... Um, it's one of those things, it's, a, it's this huge event for, I mean, you know, those who are in charge of it are preparing for it for months and months and months. But for the broader seminary community, um, the week leading up to it, there's lots of activity, uh, lots of preparations that, that involve all of us. Um, and in particular, on the day itself, it's a very long day. We're setting up tables, we're, you know, doing all sorts of things. We're welcoming visitors. We had a beautiful solemn Vespers, which was open to the public on Saturday evening. and also was live streamed. Uh, if you are interested, you could go back and find it. I'm sure it's on our seminary website. Um, but uh, yeah, then we of course had the dinner itself. Um, many of our seminarians were serving, waiting tables, and just doing other various tasks and interacting with the guests and Anyway, and then afterwards taking everything down, and <laughs> it's, it's quite a long day. I think I underestimated how tired I was uh, today, the day after, because, uh, well, I also, I didn't get much sleep last night. I had to get up early this morning to take my vocation director back to the airport. Um, he was down visiting us for the gala for a few days. So I brought him to uh, SFO this morning, and... Uh, then came back and we had mass, um, beautiful Byzantine divine liturgy today, actually, and doing some other things. And in the afternoon, I laid down to take a little nap because I felt my eyes were just so heavy. I thought I would sleep for 15 minutes, and I slept for three hours. <laughs> and I woke up uh, with that feeling, you know, of um, not knowing where I am, what year it is. <laughs> so disoriented, like a bear coming out of a winter's hibernation or something. So um, my day has basically shifted back three hours from, you know, <laughs> where, I, where I would otherwise be. So I'm doing a lot of things quite late now that I had planned to do earlier on um, in the day. Anyway, that's all right. I'm walking now under the light of a full moon, bright white moon up above me. And it makes me think of that creature that I saw out here, which I, I mentioned to you last week, if you listened to that podcast, I was um, supposing it might be a fox. Well, Father Jeff ran into it too when he was down here, <laughs> the vocation director, and he informed me that it is in fact a coyote. <laughs> So that shows how much I know about wildlife, I suppose. Coyotes, I have later learned from Google, um, inhabit lots of urban areas in California because, I suppose, of urban sprawl. And the cities just keep growing and encroaching on their natural habitats. So they cohabitate with human populations. Um, yeah, interestingly, they are usually, they are usually nocturnal. You know, as I as I thought, um, well, I, I thought about uh, when I thought that it was a fox. I presumed it was a nocturnal animal. Coyotes are too, so it is a little unusual that it's out so much in the daytime around here. But maybe it's just it's just getting used to us. I don't know. Anyway, I'm hoping I don't run into him tonight. But if I do, well, I'm sure it'll be all right. So um, let's see. Any other news? Um, I'm walking near the front of our seminary here and there's some construction going on next door to us. Um, the local fire department are building something on uh, some land right next to our driveway, 
which I think the seminary has sold to them or maybe leased out to them, I'm not sure. Um, so I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go by another way and uh, hope to avoid some of this noise out here. Anyway, any other news from this week? It feels like this week has just been a whirlwind, to tell you the truth, with so much activity and uh, so many things going on. Um, but otherwise, other than the gala, which now mercifully has ended, <laughs> all the tables are down, the tents have been taken down. Um, other than that, yeah, we're just going to be continuing on with our classes again this week like normal. We have tomorrow free in order to catch up and recover before getting back to our normal round of studies and classes on Tuesday. So that's going to be uh, my week. I hope that you all have had a good weekend and that this week is going to be good for you as well. Now, without any further ado, let's jump in and talk about J.R.R. Tolkien because we've come at last, after so many weeks, to the end of the Silmarillion in this final appendix of the Rings of Power and the Third Age. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Fool of a took! Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity! So, it feels a little odd to be jumping back into the Silmarillion after so many weeks in the Unfinished Tales. But the way that this reading schedule is set up, um, we've been going through the Unfinished Tales according to the, the ages of the world in which they take place, and filling in these last appendices from the Silmarillion in the appropriate places, you know, in the chronology. So we finally finished the Second Age with all the Unfinished Tales um, from that era, and now we're coming to this sort of summary of uh, every, all the background of the Third Age of the world. And the Third Age of Middle-earth, of course, is when the events of the Lord of the Rings take place. So this is very familiar territory for us. This is the background behind what's happening in the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, last week we read the story about Galadriel and Celeborn. And in it, we heard a little bit about Celebrimbor, this elven smith who uh, was influenced by Sauron to forge these rings of power. And uh, initially, Sauron came to the elves and to the other peoples of Middle-earth in this age uh, under the guise of a giver of gifts. That was, in fact, the name that he took for himself. He, he called himself the Gift Giver. And... Uh, Many of the elves received him with suspicion. In fact, Galadriel would not allow him to uh, come into her realm. But others among the elves were more receptive to his overtures, and among them the descendants of the Noldor, of whom Celebrimbor is one. Those who always had a great love for crafts and for making things with, with their hands. And Sauron was able, just as he was in Valinor back in the First Age, um, with Feanor, right, to sort of ensnare their hearts by offering them the possibility of hidden knowledge and of secret virtues, which they could not come upon on their own. So Celebrimbor is one of those, Tolkien is careful to say his heart was never corrupted per se, but he was tricked by Sauron into forging these rings of power. Now, the three rings which belong to the elves uh, Sauron's hand never touched them, and so the three rings uh, themselves were never corrupted either. Um, and Sauron desired them greatly, but was never able to lay his hand upon them. The elves kept them safe and distributed them among uh, elves of great virtue, of whom Galadriel was one, and later Elrond had another one. But the remaining rings Sauron took and used for ill ends. And so, of course, um, as we hear in The Lord of the Rings from Gandalf, I believe, he tells us this, <laughs> um, seven rings went to the dwarves and nine rings went to men. In this uh, particular tale, this appendix to the Silmarillion, 
Tolkien tells us the dwarves um, were harder for Sauron to corrupt. The dwarves, um, you know, th their main temptation was one of greed. And so they, uh, apparently Sauron found them a little bit harder to sway to his will than men who were ever easier to bring under his dominion. But in the end, the dwarves also came under his power. Um, each of those seven rings he gave to the dwarf lords became the basis of these great dwarf hordes of legend. And um, one of them we'll read about in The Hobbit, these great treasuries of the dwarves. Well, at the bottom of each one of these is one of the rings of power. And the rings, because they are you know, under the, the will of Sauron, they're under his dominion, whoever uses one of these rings that he gave to the dwarves or to men, although they may gain the object of their desire in the short term, it redounds to their downfall. And so, yeah, the dwarves, the dwarf lords who use these rings, in the short term, they build up great wealth and treasures, and men who use them win great glory and victories in battle and great power and dignity and respect and so on. But in the end, it turns to their corruption. So the great dwarf hordes ultimately are scattered. They attract dragons who come and destroy the dwarves, right? And take the hordes for themselves. <laughs> and the rings either, Tolkien says, were melted in dragon fire or were recovered by Sauron, their master. And likewise, the ones given to men, those men who became greatly renowned for their strength and prowess and so on, well, one by one, they were corrupted and they become, as we know, I think from other sources, we've read this already, but they become the Nazgul, the ring wraiths, something less than men, um, these, these just dark wraith-like spirits who are bound to do Sauron's will. They're no longer free. Oh my gosh, that corrupt, that construction noise is just outrageous. <laughs> um, fortunately, we can't really hear it from the seminary. Only out here, closer to the gate, do we get all that noise. So, this is the tale of the rings and how Sauron used them to try to bring these different races of Middle-earth under his dominion, under his sway. So this is his long-term strategy. Um, this, by the way, the making of the rings precedes the downfall of Numenor. So Sauron in those days was still appearing at, under this fair appearance, you know. He was coming among the elves and so on. Um, under the guise of someone very beautiful, very wise, very measured in speech, and you know, uh, uh, everything about him was attractive. So um, they, it was very easy for them to be swayed by his promises and by his half-truths. But later, after the events of the Akalabath and the downfall of Numenor, when Sauron is swallowed up by the sea, uh, when this whole island goes down beneath the waves, well, he returns only as a kind of a spirit. He's a kind of a wraith himself, no longer with a bodily form. That's when he takes up his residence in Mirkwood at Dol Gulur. And that's what we read about in The Hobbit, or we will read about soon. This necromancer, this, uh, you know, sort of unknown shadowy enemy who's living in the forest. Well, that's Sauron in his spiritual form, no longer with a bodily, um, you know, form, material form as he had before. Okay, so what else is important in this tale? We get a lot of interesting background here. For example, um, Tolkien says, even as the first shadows were felt in Mirkwood from this return of Sauron, there appeared in the west of Middle-earth the Istari, whom men called the wizards. So the wizards, who we meet in Lord of the Rings, these are emissaries of the Valar. They are sent into the world in order to inspire among the free peoples, the elves and men, and in the end, even the hobbits, <laughs> Uh, the doing of good deeds, the opposition to evil, um, namely to Sauron and to his forces. And uh, of these wizards, we get three by name. There's Mithrandir, 
uh, or as men call him Gandalf, who we know very well. He needs no introduction. And we also get Saruman, whose elven name is Kurunir, and then Radagast, who we hear very little about. Um, but these are the three main protagonists uh, of, of the Valar in the West during the Third Age. So they are actually Maiar. They're these angelic spirits um, of, a, of a lower order, a lower rank than the Valar themselves, but nevertheless spirits of great power who come from the uttermost west into the world to do the will of the Valar. So the wizards are of actually the same rank as Sauron in the hierarchy of being. <laughs> um, so they're obviously, they're not, they're not Valar themselves, but like Sauron, they are Maiar. They're these angelic spirits. Which is interesting to consider because in the Lord of the Rings, without knowing this background, um, we wouldn't tend to think that Gandalf or even Saruman are on the same level as Sauron, but they really are. Um, they're on kind of an equal playing field. Although Sauron has amassed a great deal of power to himself in the forms of armies and so on, orcs that he's made to do his bidding and all of that. But purely on the level of, of being, of creation, um, the wizards are of the same rank, the same order as Sauron himself. So they come into the West to uh, unite the, the children of Iluvatar in opposition to Sauron and all of his evil plans. And they end up call, calling together the White Council, um, which involves many of the elves, including Galadriel and Elrond, and also Gandalf and Saruman. So the, the leaders among the free peoples to discuss to strategize, how are they going to oppose Sauron now that he seems to be uh, making his return? He's uniting all these evil creatures around him in Mirkwood and so on. And that's where we get the first indication of Saruman's, the, the, the seeds of treachery that are beginning to sprout in Saruman's heart. Interesting passage here, Tolkien says, Too long had he studied the ways of Sauron in hope to defeat him. And now he envied him as a rival, rather than hated his works. Therefore he was willing to play with peril and let Sauron be for a time, hoping by his craft to forestall both his friends and the enemy when the ring should appear. So Saruman, above all, wants to seize the, the one ring for himself. Because after all, as we know, I didn't get into this, but I think we all know, the one ring which Sauron forged to be the master of them all, was lost in the river Anduin. And now that's the great prize everyone's looking for. Sauron wants it so that he can set himself up once again as the true ruler, master of, of all the rings and of all Middle-earth. And all the free peoples want to find it so they can destroy it before he can get it. But Saruman, he wants it for himself. So he's placing himself He's on a team of his own <laughs> against both his apparent allies and Sauron, his rival, in order to win the One Ring and all the power that it represents. So interesting here, the, the White Council, Gandalf and all the rest of them want to strike at Sauron while he's still weak, but Saruman convinces them to hold off. And what appears to be strategy on his part for the good of the whole is in fact um, his own selfish devices, you know, so that he can achieve his own ends, which are unique and hidden from the rest. But there's also a great quote from Gandalf at this White Council. Uh, he says, um, Many are the strange chances of the world, and help oft shall come from the hands of the weak when the wise falter. And of course, we see this play out with the hobbits throughout the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, it's as, as, as it is in, in Holy Scripture, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. Tolkien has such a good sense of that. And we see how it plays out with the hobbits, um, who are, in a way, the chosen children of Iluvatar to shame both elves and men, <laughs> and dwarves too, I suppose. Um, and, and even the wizards, in a way. We know Saruman, um, from this, this high order himself, falls like Sauron did 
but the hobbits, the lowest, the sort of least important of all the ranks of creation, from among the hobbits comes Frodo, who alone accomplishes uh, the designs of this White Council to destroy the One Ring once and for all. Anyway, those are all the events of the Lord of the Rings, which we know so well. They're summed up here in this appendix um, from the perspective of the elves, which is interesting because, of course, the elves are always the ones telling the history of Middle-earth in the Silmarillion. And so we hear at the end, um, as, as we know it, in the, in the third book, The Return of the King, with the great battle and, and uh, Frodo and Sam coming to Mount Doom and so on, here's what the elves say about that. In that hour was put to the proof that which Mithrandir had spoken, and help came from the hands of the weak when the wise faltered. For as many songs have since sung, it was the Perianath, the little people, dwellers in hillsides and meadows, that brought them deliverance. So the elves um, are humbled in the end by the help of the hobbits, the little people, <laughs> who in the end achieve the victory. You know, it's not the great armies. It's not the... Uh, to, to be sure, the victory couldn't be won without the great armies either. But it's not principally by the armies or by the, their strategies or their commanders or even by the magic of Gandalf that the battle is won. It's by the simplicity and the courage and the virtues of the little people that in the end, Middle-earth is saved. And then we get this very final passage at the end of this uh, last appendix. In the twilight of autumn, it says, the last ship sailed out of Mithlond, the gray havens, until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it and the winds of the round sky troubled it no more, and borne upon the high airs above the mists of the world, it passed into the ancient west, and an end was come for the Eldar of story and of song." What a beautiful ending. And we get here that very characteristic Tolkienian <laughs> combination of um, piercing beauty and sadness, melancholy. Um, even the name, the Grey Havens, bears something of that quality, something which is so beautiful and yet it inspires in us a kind of a feeling of, of melancholy, of nostalgia for something, something precious that has been lost. This quality, I think I might have said this before, but it seems to me that particular quality is, is Tolkien's, it's where he's strongest, his, that's his greatest virtue, is to, to inspire us um, a recognition of, yeah, of beauty that has been lost, a kind of a mournful appreciation of beauty. So here we have finished the Silmarillion, we've, we've uh, marveled at the history of the elves in the first and second ages. And now we've come to the end of the third age, the final age of elves in the world. And we're coming into the fourth age now, the age of men, the dominion of men, the second, second born of Iluvatar, the first born of all passed away into the West. So a bit of a, um, a bit of a sad note to end on in the Silmarillion, but what else would we expect <laughs> from our great friend J.R.R. Tolkien? Now, in his letters, too, we're in a bit of a sad place right now because um, we're, I'm around letter 250, uh, 250 260, and um, his friend C.S. Lewis has just passed away. This is, I believe, 1963, um, in the fall, around this time of year, um, September, October. So C.S. Lewis has passed away. And uh, what's particularly sad about this is that Tolkien says in several letters to people who wrote to him hoping to console him or, you know, asking how he's doing, um, he writes back to them that for the past 10 years, he and C.S. Lewis had been more or less estranged from one another. They, he says they ceased to be intimates some 10 years before. In fact, in letter 257, he writes this, C.S.L. was my closest friend from about 1927 to 1940, and remained very dear to me. 
His death was a grievous blow. But in fact, we saw less and less of one another after he came under the dominant influence of Charles Williams, and still less after his very strange marriage. And in another letter, um, I don't remember which one, but Tolkien actually mentions that Lewis never even told him he was getting married until well after the fact. So I'm not entirely sure about what the background is there. I don't know. I'm not a, so I'm not a Tolkien scholar. <laughs> I'm just a, an amateur with a great interest. I'm certainly not a C.S. Lewis scholar, and I know very little about his life. So I don't know about this marriage, um, what, what happened there, or anything. And I don't know mm, really anything about this guy, Charles Williams, who Tolkien says Lewis came under his influence. It's kind of a cryptic term there. Um, I think he might have been mentioned in that book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, by Dr. Holly Ordway, so I might go back and look him up. But, you know, just on the human level, without knowing the background, <laughs> really here, it is, it is sad that in the end of, of his life, um, Lewis and Tolkien drifted apart, although he says he remained, Lewis, Tol Tolkien says Lewis remained very dear to him, um, and his friendship was obviously very important, especially in those earlier years, very formative. Um, how sad that in the end of their lives, they drifted apart from one another. You know, uh, in that last, last quote that I read from this appendix, um, Tolkien refers to the bent world. Uh, the last ship of the elves sailed away west until the seas of the bent world fell away beneath it. And the, the, that phrase, the bent world, it reminds me always of Hopkins. Um, he has that beautiful poem, uh, God's Grandeur, which ends, The Holy Ghost over the bent world broods. Uh, this image of uh, the Holy Spirit as kind of a mother hen <laughs> overshadowing her brood with her wings. The Holy, Spirit Holy Ghost overshadows the world with bent wings. Uh, the, so, but uh, the world itself is bent. The world itself is disordered, sort of from within. It's messed up, and the Holy Spirit is overshadowing it. His bent wings overshadow the bent world, and so God Himself is is greater than that which is bent, which is broken. He's covering it all, and of course, the hope in that, as the hope of the Silmarillion is, uh, is that one day all will be restored. There's a kind of a, um, a power uh, which is from paradise, something, a seed of the beginning, which one day will sprout and will restore all things in this bent world to their original glory and purpose. So the phrase, the bent world, reminds me of that. But um, another thing that came to mind, just another Hopkins connection <laughs> with C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien here and their final estrangement. Um, Hopkins has a beautiful poem where he writes about Christ as our, our first, fast, last friend. And there's just something very consoling in that. Um, Christ as our, our first friend, uh, our fast friend that is steadfast, and our last friend. <laughs> when all else in this world falls away from us, as indeed it may, because this world is bent, and things in it are not as they should be. You know, we're made for relationships that are eternal, right? We're eternal creatures. We're not just temporal. So we're made to be loved eternally and to love eternally, perfectly. But in this world, so often that's not the way it works out because of human weakness and just because of the fallenness of creation. But Christ, the love of Christ, that is unfailing. That is eternal. And in that, we taste what we're made for and what, in the end, the whole world uh, not only is made for, <laughs> but hopefully, uh, and not only hopefully, but also with great faith, we believe, will be restored. Will be restored. Now, in these letters from this week, um, in addition to all the C.S. Lewis stuff, Tolkien also tells the story of how the Hobbit came to be published, and I've never heard this before, so I'll share it with you. This is also letter 257, I believe. Um, he says here, The Hobbit saw the light and made my connection with A&U, that's Alan and Unwin, by an accident. It was not known 
except to my children and to my friend, C.S. Lewis, uh, but I lent it to the mother superior of Charwell Edge to amuse her while recovering from flu, okay? It thus came to the notice of a young woman, a student resident in the house, or the friend of one, who worked in A&U's office. Thus it passed to the eyes of Stanley Unwin, who tried it on his younger son Rainer, then a small boy, and so it was published. So we got the latter part of that story <laughs> in his very early letters, you know. Rainer Unwin loved it. But I never realized, Tolkien never submitted it to Alan and Unwin. He wasn't trying to get it published. <laughs> he just wrote it for his children's private amusement. And he, he lent it to his friend, the mother superior of this convent, for her private amusement. And then it just happened to fall under the eyes of this publisher's assistant, and so history was made. He goes on to say, um, I then offered them the legends of the Elder Days, the Silmarillion, but their readers turned that down. They wanted a sequel, but I wanted heroic legends and high romance. The result was The Lord of the Rings. Fantastic. So I just find that uh, so funny <laughs> that Tolkien uh, well, wasn't even trying to get The Hobbit published. You know, this was all just his own private work. Even The Silmarillion very much was his own, his own private work. Um, he writes a little bit later in this same letter something that we've heard this kind of thing before from him, but um, it might be worthwhile to mention it again on his motivations for writing The Silmarillion. He says, I began the construction of languages in early boyhood. I am primarily a scientific philologist. My interests were and remain largely scientific, but I was also interested in traditional tales, especially those concerning dragons, and writing, not reading, verse, <laughs> and metrical devices. These things began to flow together when I was an undergraduate, to the despair of my tutors and near wrecking of my career. <laughs> For when officially engaged on classics, I made the acquaintance of languages not usually studied by the modern English each with a powerfully individual phonetic aesthetic, Welsh, Finnish, and the remnants of 4th century Gothic. Finnish also provided a glimpse of an entirely different mythological world. And he goes on to describe in this letter, you know, how he um, came to write each of the different parts of the Silmarillion and the circumstances of life in which he was writing them. And it, it's, all, it's all very, very interesting at least to those of us who have already read his stories and have a, a great love for them, to hear the context of Tolkien's life in which they came to be. So, but even more interesting for me is just to recognize he was not writing any of this with the intention or even the awareness that it might be read by anyone else outside of his circle of close acquaintances. C.S. Lewis and his friends um, in his little literary society and you know, his, his own children and so forth, his own, his own intimates. He certainly was not preparing to write a work that would be of worldwide appeal and influence. So that goes to show, just as Gandalf says at the White Council, that uh, those of whom the world takes little notice, and who take a little notice of the world <laughs> in a certain way, um, can, have, can undertake actions which have effects that shake the thrones of the great and that send forth ripples into the farthest corners of the world. One last quote here from Tolkien. Uh, this has direct bearing on our reading next year of Charles Dickens, because at the end of letter 257, he says, quote, I have never been able to enjoy Pickwick. <laughs> and I can only assume he's talking about the Pickwick Papers, which is this serial writing by Charles Dickens over the course of, I think, a couple of years, where he tells all these stories. Um, I don't know, I, really, I don't know what the context of the Pickwick Papers is. I haven't dived into it yet, but I, it's one of Dickens' earliest writings. So I put it on the draft schedule for Dickens for next year, right at the beginning. And now I'm wondering, just based on Tolkien's response, if maybe I should cut that out or, or put it a little later in the year. However, Tolkien's taste is not always my taste. Uh, that is, that's one thing that's for sure. Because, uh, you know, he doesn't think much, for example, of the last book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. And for my money, the last book, That Hideous Strength, is the best of the three. But I digress. 
So that's where we stand this week with Tolkien, and we're going to get some more unfinished tales in the weeks to come, uh, leading us into further corners, nooks and crannies of the Third Age, before we round out the year with a retrospective on The Hobbit, and then various assorted essays and things as we move into November, December. So looking forward to wrapping up this wonderful year we spent in the company of J.R.R. Tolkien and of each one of you. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Okay, as promised, we're going to wrap up here with a little bit about Saint Januarius. In Italian, he's called San Gennaro, and his relics are found in the Cathedral of Naples, Napoli. So, Saint Januarius, um, it's not known exactly where he was born. He was an, a native maybe of Naples or maybe of Benevento, which is another great city of that part of Italy. He lived uh, um, in the fourth century. Uh, is that right? I'm doubting myself all of a sudden. I believe it is the fourth century, yeah. He, anyway, he lived uh, before the Edict of Milan, and he was a bishop. He became the Bishop of Benevento during the persecution of Diocletian, one of the worst persecutions of Christians in the early church. So, uh, here's the circumstances of his martyrdom. He had a great friend whose uh, name was Sosius. Sosius was a deacon, I believe, of the Church of Benevento. And Sosius, along with a whole bunch of other Christians, mostly laymen, were all put in prison by uh, the governor of that region, Campania. The governor's name is Draconsius, which I just think is fantastic. I mean, if you're going to be a draconian governor, you want Draconsius to be your name. <laughs> anyway, Draconsius throws all these guys into prison in a little town called Pazzuoli. And uh, this particular deacon, Sosius, was uh, J St. Januarius's like, best friend. And so in Butler's Lives of the Saints, he says, um, Januarius reposed in him an entire confidence and for many years had found no more solid comfort among men than in his holy counsels and conversation. Upon the news that this great servant of God and several others were fallen into the hands of the persecutors, the good bishop determined to make them a visit in order to comfort and encourage them and provide them with every spiritual succor to arm them for their great conflict. In this act of charity, no fear of torments or danger of his life could terrify him, and martyrdom was his recompense. So because he went to visit his friend and these other Christians who were all imprisoned, uh, the guards recognized him, they sent word to the governor, and Januarius was arrested. And uh, along with him also were another deacon of Benevento named Festus, and then Desiderius, a lector of the bishop's church. So they happened to be visiting him <laughs> when the police came, and they all got arrested and brought before the governor. Uh, it says they had a share in the in interrogations and torments with which the good bishop underwent. So you get a sense of just how dangerous it was to be a Christian or even to associate with Christians in those days of, of Diocletian. Um, simply to visit Christians in prison, you would be tarred with the same brush and subject to the same punishments. So, they all are imprisoned. Um, sometime after that, it says, The governor went to Puzzuoli, and these three confessors, loaded with heavy irons, were made to walk before his chariot to that town, where they were thrown into the same prison where the four martyrs already mentioned were detained. They had been condemned by an order from the emperor, uh, to be torn in pieces by wild beasts, and were then lying in expectation of the execution of their sentence. The day after the arrival of St. Januarius and his two companions, all these champions of Christ were exposed to be devoured by the beasts in the amphitheater. But none of the savage animals could be provoked to touch them. And that's actually not uncommon in the accounts of these early martyrs. 
Um, you'd imagine the Romans would eventually have just given up on this <laughs> because time and again you hear about Christian martyrs who were thrown into the amphitheater and the beasts, even though they're starving, just won't go near them. So it's a miracle. So it says the people were amazed but imputed their preservation to art magic. So they were not moved to faith by that miracle and the martyrs were condemned to be beheaded. The sentence was executed near Pozzuoli, as Bede testifies, and the martyrs were decently interred near that town. But they weren't left there. So soon after the Edict of Milan, when Constantine makes Christianity legal throughout the Roman Empire, um, and Christians begin to become influential, they came back and recovered the holy relics of these martyrs, and they moved them to different places. So Festus and Desiderius went back to Benevento, <laughs> and uh, Sosius, the deacon, his good friend, went to a town called Messino, but Januarius was taken back to Naples, uh, and that city has long honored him as their principal patron. And by the way, when I was in Naples, I got to visit his cathedral and venerate the relics of St. Januarius. Now, there's a wonderful miracle well, there's actually been a whole bunch of miracles associated with St. Januarius. Um, so among them all, um, I'll read this passage from, from Bede's Lives of the Saints. He says, um, Among many miraculous deliverances which uh, Naples ascribes to the intercession of this great saint, none is looked upon as more remarkable than its preservation from the fiery eruptions of Mount Vesuvius, now called La Somma, which is only eight miles distant and which has often threatened the entire destruction of this city, both by the prodigious quantities of burning sand, ashes, and stones which it throws up on those occasions to a much greater distance than Naples, and by a torrent of burning sulfur, nitre, calcium stones, and other materials which, like a liquid fire, has sometimes gushed forth from that volcano, and digging itself a channel which has sometimes been two or three miles broad, rolled its flaming waves through the valley into the sea, destroying towns and villages as it, as it went, and often passing near Naples. So it's not a particularly safe place to build your city. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say, Some of these eruptions, which in the 5th and 7th centuries threatened this city with destruction by the clouds of ashes which they raised, are said to have darkened the sky as far away as Constantinople and struck terror into the inhabitants of that city. The intercession of St. Januarius was implored at Naples on those occasions, and the divine mercy so wonderfully interposed in causing these dreadful evils suddenly to cease thereupon. The protection of the city of Naples from this dreadful volcano, by the same means, was most remarkable in the years 1631 and 1707. In this last, whilst Cardinal Francis Pignatelli, with the clergy and people, devoutly followed the relics uh, of St. Januarius in procession to a chapel at the foot of Mount Vesuvius. Can you imagine, by the way, when a volcano is erupting, going in procession with your bishop and all the priests, <laughs> holding up this relic, and walking to the very foot of the mountain. Like, can you imagine there's lava coming down, the sulfur smoke everywhere, and you go right to the foot of the mountain with the holy relics. The, the courage, oh my gosh. Anyway, um, at that moment, the fiery eruption ceased. The mist, which before was so thick that no one could see another at the distance of three yards, was scattered. And at night, the stars appeared in the sky. So they love St. Januarius in Naples. <laughs> They've loved him for centuries because he preserved the city from destruction. And so in the cathedral, um, in a rich chapel called the Treasury, are preserved the blood and the head of St. Januarius. The blood is preserved in two very old glass vials. It is congealed and of a dark color. But when brought in sight of the head, this is so interesting, Though at a considerable distance, it melts, bubbles up, and upon the least motion flows on any side, so it liquefies. Um, 
this book says, the fact is attested by Baronius, Ribadineria, and innumerable other eyewitnesses of all nations and religions, many of whom most attentively examined all the circumstances. It happens equally in all seasons of the year and in a variety of circumstances. The usual times when it is performed are the Feast of St. Januarius, the 19th of September, uh, that of the translation of the relics when they were brought from Putzwali to Naples, which is um, May, what is it, May 21st or something? No, May 1st, I don't know. It's sometime in May, anyway. And the 20th day of December, on which in 1631, <laughs> the terrible eruption of Mount Vesuvius was extinguished upon invoking the patronage of the martyr. So three times a year, the Archbishop of Naples will go into the treasury in the cathedral. He brings out the relic of the blood of St. Januarius, and he holds it up before all the people, and he turns it around so you can see that it has liquefied, so that this congealed blood once again has become liquid. And uh, it says, um, uh, yeah, the reliquary then remains on view for the faithful for eight days, during which they can kiss it while the priest turns it to show that the blood is still liquid. Then it's returned back to the treasury and locked away. Uh, the people will come forward to the priest holding the reliquary, um, exclaiming, the miracle has happened, to kiss the relic, and then they all sing the Te Deum in Thanksgiving. Um, so Catholic News Agency put an article up today. Um, they say, Se um, several investigations have already been conducted in the past to find a scientific explanation that answers the question of how something solid can suddenly liquefy, but none <laughs> has been satisfactory so far. When the blood doesn't liquefy, the Neapolitans take it as an omen of misfortune. And it's been very rare, but the times that it has not liquefied were September 1939, 1940, so right around World War II, 1943, 1973, 1980, and then December 2016. Very, very interesting. Um, so today, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. Today, the blood liquefied. <laughs> so you can go on and see it. They, they live-streamed the Mass now from the Cathedral of Naples. You can see the Archbishop holding up the vial, and the blood has turned to liquid. And indeed, earlier this year in May, on that other, the Feast of the Translation of the Relics, when they were moved, um, again, the blood liquefied on that day. But I think the Archbishop of Naples, he had a very good sermon, which I happened to find when I was doing some research earlier today um, about this. His name, by the way, is Archbishop Domenico Battaglia. And he said this on that earlier feast day this year when it liquefied. He said, for the people not to be overly intrigued by the miracle or seized by the yearning to read in it good omens or ominous omens for our future. Regardless of whether the blood liquefies, he says, it must remind us of the blood of Christ in whose paschal mystery we still find ourselves and who is the only one who gives meaning to the great and intense icon of the liquefying blood. So we might think, well, what is the point of this blood liquefying year after year after year? What does it signify? Well, part of what it should signify for us is, yeah, as the Archbishop says, reminding us of the blood of Christ, which is ever new, never congealed, <laughs> but always effective for our salvation. And, uh, you know, the New Testament, St. Paul, call, or the author of Hebrews, which I believe is St. Paul, <laughs> says that the blood of Christ speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel, which means, um, back to this whole idea of the bent world and God brooding over it and, and sort of protecting us invisibly. So the blood of Abel is the blood of the, the first murder, right? Um, murdered by his brother Cain. And so uh, that blood was spilled upon the earth and it cried out to God. You know, the injustice of that murder cried out to God to set things right. But the blood of Christ, St. Paul says, speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel, which is to say that the blood of Christ poured out for our salvation is more powerful uh, than all the blood spilt by the injustices of humanity and by all the, you know, the, the, all, all the sufferings and all the sinfulness of all the generations of men who've walked upon the earth. The blood of Christ is more powerful, more eloquent than it all. And God will have the last word. 
And so the Archbishop says, uh, quote, this is translated from Italian, so it's a little awkward, but he says, there is no social sore or communal wound that does not have the right of citizenship in this precious reliquary. <laughs> the marvelous apex of the entire treasure of St. Januarius. But he says, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the precious stones, nor the gems set among golden mitres, nor the silver busts of the saints. The real treasure of St. Januarius is his people. And within them, those who sit on the margins of life, the last ones, the most fragile. So very much in the line of what Pope Francis keeps saying about um, and it, but it's, it's deeply traditional. St. Lawrence the deacon said the same thing way back in the early centuries of the church. The treasure of the church is the people. It's the poor. It's the suffering. It's those who cry out to God. And the treasure of St. Januarius, you know, in his, in his earthly life was his friend, Socius, who was imprisoned, whom he risked everything to go and to visit, um, to give him a word of hope and of consolation. And so the treasure uh, of this holy relic, which liquefied today, uh, ought to remind us of the blood of Christ, which is our salvation and our hope. And whatever our sufferings, whatever our, our hardships in this valley of tears, Christ is faithful and his blood is effective. And the salvation that he won for us is assured if only we cling to him with great faith and hope and love. So, my dear friends in the Lord, let's wrap it up here because it is very, very late. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I am ready to go inside. <laughs> I'm not particularly tired after my three-hour nap. Funny how that works. But <laughs> I'm definitely ready to go in. I'll put up this podcast and uh, maybe get a bite to eat and get ready to turn in for the night before too much longer. I pray you have a great week this week, and I look forward to speaking to you hopefully earlier in the day next Saturday. May Almighty God bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. <laughs>